welcome to the latest Butts on Film podcast. I, as always, am Craig Eastman, and with me tonight, Scott Morris. Hello there. Uh, we won't be joined by Drew Tavendale tonight because he's swanning around in France and more power to him. Uh, we will be using this opportunity to discuss the works of a certain Mr. Stanley Kubrick. So fasten your seatbelts, and without further ado, I suppose we'd better crack on. So then, Scott, Stanley Kubrick. Yes, uh, one of the most well-regarded directors of his generation. And for someone who's been making films for, or was making films for nearly five decades, you'd think we'd have to pick and choose what films we'd have to cover. But his meticulous attention to detail in all aspects of production, especially in the later years, Mm. means that there's only 13 actual feature films for us to talk through. And... There's a few on that list that Kubrick himself probably wouldn't be thanking us for covering. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, exactly. We're looking at a body of work probably of about 10 films, right? But <clears throat> I guess for the sake of com- completion, we probably want to say at least uh, something about one or two of those earlier films that probably only just qualify as uh, as Kub- Kubrickian works, right? Yeah. Um, in particular, we're talking about his debut feature, uh, Fear and Desire from 1953, which he did his best to expunge from the historical record completely. Um, but of course now he's sadly no longer around to pursue that aim, it's rather easier to get a hold of these days. And this initial outing is rather compromised by the shoestring budget that he had available at the time, and however it still I think is an interesting uh, little watch for aficionados of his work. It's uh, a tale of four armed forces operatives who are trying to make their way back to base after crashing behind enemy lines, and it features some of the aspects that Kubrick will return to, you know, time and time again. Uh, not just the futility of war, but also the effects that it has on its soldiers. Uh, that's uh, somewhat remarkable in an era back in 1953. Uh, the war films back then, to my knowledge, were still fairly jingoistic and simplistic in their adaptation of this kind of thing, still going from the jubilism of uh, winning World War Two, And this uh, film does examine, even if somewhat unsuccessfully, uh, the trauma of stress disorders and items like that. It's, uh, it is interesting, uh, but it uh, certainly is much more successful than many directors' student outings, which is effectively what this is. This is still Kubrick trying to teach himself how to make a film. Uh, but ultimately, it's, it's, it's complete lack of budget and it's minimal narrative and some pretty iffy performances. It means it's a bit of a stretch to call it a good film, but it's an interesting, interesting little footnote for the completionist. Have we any indication of why Kubrick wanted to... To disown it, did he just not see it as a particularly polished work and therefore not kind of worthy of his own name? Yeah, it's lack of budget has compromised it quite severely. I mean, there's points that I was going to be thinking that maybe he's trying to make some kind of interesting points where, like, the lead uh, character, there's a, a allied, I assume, naval officer. It's all a bit vague and actually where these guys have crashed, but the an allied naval officer, and uh, he's also playing the part of the uh, opposing, you know, looks like a Nazi outfit, at least the uh, an Axis, if you like. Uh, commanding officer, you know, the, the guy on the other side, and I was thinking maybe this is something to do with kind of man's duality or something like that, but no, it just turns out that they didn't have enough money to cast two separate actors for the role, so it's just him in a wig. And oh. so the, 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 there's a few points like that. The story doesn't really hang together all that well. The so the performances from the rest of the cast are a bit iffy. The, the guy that uh, goes a bit insane, you know, you know you're in trouble when, I suppose it was before it was actually a trope, but when he loses his mind a little bit, he's he's figured uh, clutching his knees and rocking back and forward gently. It's like, uh, yeah, this isn't the most subtle of works. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's, I don't think it's anything like as bad as a lot of people's, you know, as I say, student efforts would have been. But mm-hmm. it's it's an interesting little side note for anything else in his career rather than something you should really be looking out if yeah. you 
not necessarily indicative of the sort of powerhouse of filmmaking that was to come. No, certainly not compared to the next, next kind of two films that he did, where I think you can actually see a bit more promise coming into it. Yeah, Kill, Killer's Kiss from 1955, which is uh, one of those Kubrick films that I hadn't, to my eternal shame, hadn't really even heard of, um, yeah, exactly let, let alone seen up until the point at which we came to prepare for this podcast, because I suspect with... Uh, Oh, I hope similarly to a lot of people just in the interest of making myself feel a little bit better, uh, even though I kind of feel like I know what I'm talking about when it comes to Kubrick, I, I soon I soon realised that actually a, a lot of what people understand about Kubrick is the sort of the myth uh, the myth of the man and his um, idiosyncratic uh, <laughs> practices, to put mm-hmm. it lightly that came in, in latter years and actually I wasn't as familiar with just his raw body of work uh, as I as I thought I was so yeah. Keller's Kiss from 1955 came as uh, quite a revelation to me. It's a it's a slender piece, but an effective pot boiler, I guess. Um, and it's interesting from a perspective that it feels very much like Kubrick finding his feet working within a, a well defined genre convention. Yeah. Um, very much uh, filmed in uh, a guerrilla style. Uh, it's worth noting that a lot of this, again, uh, much like Fear and Desire, it was pretty much a shoestring budget. Uh, but I suspect that it probably holds together a bit better. A lot of this was filmed with no permits mm. <laughs> in, in and around New York. And what's interesting about it is that I suspect you could probably say this is the first that really you start to see Kubrick playing with some of the technical aspects of filmmaking that might pop along earlier, uh, pop along later on in his career and, and figure much, much more prominently. I'm thinking about um, s- things such as like breaking the stage line, yeah. uh, which I think this is the first example of that that we see in his work and various other aspects, quite aside from the fact that it's quite an effective little movie and I actually enjoyed it far more than I expected I would. Um, yeah, it's definitely interesting to see where this fits in with the rest of his work and sort of the... I guess fear and desire was probably just him kind of taking a stab in the dark. And then I, I like to imagine him having taken a step back from that sort of gathering his thoughts and then approaching this film um, in a much different way. And probably I think it's fair to say attaining a, a much more satisfying result. Yes. I mean, if nothing else, uh, fear and desire, it's only an hour long and it feels like it should have been longer and just that couldn't make it work in the terms of uh, how they'd actually make it fit with the budget. Whereas Killer's Kiss is a complete story, if nothing else. Mm. Um, yeah. It is, as you say, it's a, an interesting little noir kind of tale, It's which is something I'm, I'm kind of fond of anyway. But it's, yeah, yeah it, it does suffer a few uneven performances, perhaps. It's not the the, the best acted performance, but it's a solid enough story. Um, nothing dramatically original, but it's certainly an enjoyable number. Um, and it certainly held my attention well enough for the uh, what ninety-ish minutes, and it's a, a just a very respectable thriller. Um, you start to see some of the, as you say, some of the, the technical aspects being played with. It's still nothing like as uh, groundbreaking as his later works or anything like that. But you can no. see you can see the inkling. If this was this is where you can start to see that he's a you know he's he's learning his craft a bit more, and it's uh, in the service of a very uh, well in the service of a pretty interesting story. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would, uh, like yourself. Not really seen much of the earlier stuff, um, uh, just from pre- some informal conversations around the, the offices at work. There's a lot of films that Stanley Kubrick's made that people uh, just don't associate with Stanley Kubrick at all. And certainly, when you when I think of Kubrick, I basically think of 2001 and everything after yeah. it. And, yeah. uh, yeah, a lot of his earlier work kind of goes a little bit uh, under the radar section, and it doesn't really deserve it. It's uh, by no means essential viewing. It's certainly not as is a one of his best films, but it's certainly a good film and worth a look at. Yeah, and I think the last point at which he would be working from. Uh 
an original story uh, because everything after this I think was adapted from an existing piece of literature uh, I may be wrong about that in one or two uh, I think more or less arguably 2001's not because that was mm. the novelization came after the uh, the Saffron uh, C. Clark's script didn't it or, okay, you okay. Know, that's, that's a technicality I think more than anything else yeah no yeah. no no but nonetheless I'm completely incorrect uh, and not for the, not for the first time in my thirty six years on this earth. In fact, oh, probably not not for the first time in the last thirty six hours on this <laughs> earth. Um, but no, I think for, certainly for a lot for a long time or predominantly throughout his career that he uh, he would he would work um, from screenplays he himself yes. adapted from existing works. Uh, and this is one of the few films where actually he he wrote the the story and I think gave the dialogue over to someone else, asked someone else to write the dialogue. I can't think if that was this or the film we'll talk about next, one or t'other anyway. You can tell we've prepared thoroughly for this. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's a really interesting film, and I think um, if if I'd watched this without knowing it was a Stanley Kubrick film, I still would have enjoyed it greatly. It kind of caught me by surprise, and I, I shall probably go back and watch it again um, for, all its, uh, for all its flaws. Uh, it's still an, an effective, little, effective little movie. Um, yes, I enjoyed it, yes. Yes. Well worth checking out if you haven't already. Uh, this would be followed by The Killing just a year later in 1956, which I think I'm correct in saying is Kubrick's first studio movie. Uh, and again, he's quite obviously operating within a pretty rigid framework, um, even in comparison to his next feature, yeah, which would be Path of Glory. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, again, as we've just mentioned, his first screenplay adapted from a novel, um, with a plot that centres on a, a daring robbery which takes place at a busy racetrack. Um, the thing that probably is most notable about The Killing is that it's uh, Kubrick's first attempt at playing with a non-linear uh, narrative structure, which purportedly was a bit of a problem for test audiences. So at the studio's insistence, and you won't hear that very often past this point in Kubrick's yeah. career... <laughs> Uh, at the studio's insistence, I think, he was forced to re-edit it back to a, a, a linear state and people found it, if anything, rather more confusing um, <laughs> if uh, a, a brief glance at IMDb's trivia page is to be believed. Uh, so he got away with it under this uh, on this occasion, um, reverting to his original edit, and it's subsequently been cited as a, a major influence by uh, any number of contemporary filmmakers, actually, most notably our friend Quentin Tarantino. Hmm. Um, it's the first time Kubrick worked with Sterling Hayden and it's uh, it's it's a nice little movie. Again, you can tell that it's obviously got some sort of production value behind it. Everything's a little bit tighter, but I'm not sure that I enjoyed it as much as Killer's Kiss. Hmm. I probably did enjoy this a little bit more. Um, it's, it just seemed a bit more polished, a bit more professional uh, than The Killing did, which is obviously just a function of budget. Uh, uh, the story itself is probably less interesting than mm. Killer's Kiss. Uh, but it's a, a, a standard noirish pot boiler uh, heist movie. Uh, however, it's quite effective for all that. I, I enjoyed it enough. It, it's paced pretty well. Uh, the only thing that really annoyed me about it was this uh, clunky narration, which really added very little to it. And yeah, something that something Kubrick was prone to, I think. Uh, fair to say. Uh, but it's yes, it's nothing special. I can't bring myself to be too enthusiastic about it. However, it was an enjoyable watch, and if it uh, had popped up randomly on telly and I was sat in front of it, I would have watched it and be quite entertained if, if I didn't know that it was from uh, Kubrick, as you say, uh, these kind of things. It's it's a perfectly fine film. Uh, it doesn't really have the, the kind of a punch or impact that would make it anything like a classic or anything. Um, and it doesn't, it's quite ephemeral. I don't think there's really much mm. there that's uh, of, of like lasting value. Certainly not even the, even his next film would be um, have a better kind of 
better kind of legs for the ages. And this one is just a decent story, very well told, uh, and reasonably acted, and pretty well paced. So it's it's perfectly fine. Um, um, and in, term, yeah. in terms of his career, it certainly it, for, it further opened doors for him, didn't it? Because uh, this was the film that brought him to the attention of um, Kirk Douglas, right? Indeed, yeah. Yes, and subsequently Kirk Douglas brought him on board for, uh, again, just a, a year later. Again, this is something that won't occur much <laughs> after this point in, in his career um, as the gap between his films got further and further apart. But um, Paths of Glory in 1957. Mm-hmm. Which I would probably argue is his first great work. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but was this where he was? Did Kirk Douglas kind of tap him up to the director after someone else pulled out of directing? Aye, uh, that was. I think that was Spartacus. I think be, that was Spartacus, be. but don't quote me on that. Um, mm. I want to say that Kirk Douglas had him in mind for this, but after after seeing the killing, but after having worked with them on Passive Glory, it was yeah. after someone else dropped the ball yeah, on Spartacus that he... Yeah, you're he, right. It definitely was for Spartacus. Um, well, I couldn't remember if it was the same on this one or not, but uh, yeah. Aye. No, I can't remember. You may, well, you may well be correct, but either way, it turned out to be quite quite the movie. And the, his first, I suppose, fear and desire aside, his first real examination of uh, the theme of the sort of the dehumanising effects of war, uh, mm. set this time amongst the trenches of the, the French front line during the First World War. So you have Kirk, Kirk Douglas, of course, as, as Colonel Dax, a French commander of the 701st Regiment uh, French Infantry. Uh, and he's ordered by his commanding officer, General Moreau, uh, to launch like an absolutely, certainly suicidal attack <laughs> against the fortified uh, German position. Uh, on the morning of the assault, which to no one's surprise is a catastrophic bust, um, one company of men fails to go over the top, which enrages Moreau who then accuses his men of, or the men of cowardice and calls into question Dax's leadership. Uh, in order to save his own face, he arranges a kangaroo court-martial of three randomly selected men from within Dax's regiment. And uh, the colonel subsequently finds himself caught between the sort of the blinking, or sorry, the blinkered rather unquestioning attitude of his superiors and his loyalty to the men who fought for him. And I sat, watched this film and I know it's held in, in, in high regard, but I really, I wasn't, I wasn't quite as prepared for this this film because to me it's quite astonishing that this was made within the American studio system a, a, little, a yeah. little over a decade after the close of World War II and just four years after the end of the Korean War. Yeah, That strikes me as absolutely um, absolutely crazy that that, that it really it really blew me away that this was made within an American studio system so close to the end of you know um, these wars, and it would be such a, a damning indictment of the the military system and and this bloody mindset of following orders simply for the purpose of following them uh, unquestioningly. Um, and I can only imagine it's due to the heft of Kirk Douglas um, yeah. that that they were able to get away with this because I can't imagine it having happened with um, with anyone with with less star power would have been able to get this get this picture made. Um, the other remarkable thing about it is that it, keeping in mind that this predates <laughs> this predates saving private Ryan by some 41 years some of the sort of the remarkable camera work that goes on um mm-hmm. this is this is really the first indication um of Stanley Kubrick the, whose whose great passion in life prior to this um or his great passions being chess and photography before this I want to say this is the first picture where I really started to notice the the camera work and how he was guiding at this point, guiding later on, completely overriding his, cin- mm-hmm. his cinematographers. 
there's some fantastic camera work among the trenches, which, albeit in this case, it was achieved by widening the trenches apparently by two feet to to accept the camera dolly system. But also, the attack on the anthill fortification is accompanied by some crazy camera work that, like I say, that you can you can immediately see must have informed, or you would you would imagine certainly informed. Um, you have to imagine that this. This must have been at the back of Yanis Kaminsky's mind when he was he was shoving those cameras up the beaches of Normandy in Private Ryan. Yes, yes. Um, I've said more or less the same thing with notes here. It's the first time we really see Kubrick becoming the, the kind of more Kubrickian filmmaker, if you like. This is this has got all the technical underpinnings that you kind of come to associate with later. Um, especially impressive in the time of 1957, where cameras were roughly the same size as a house. Yes. And trying to roll through through trenches and things like that. So it was a, a terrific sort of technical performance on that level. Uh, and it is aided by a terrific performance from Kirk Douglas, who I'm you know, not all that uh, fond of, I think, generally, for Mm. whatever reason, but uh, it's a terrific performance here. And hugely Uh, sympathetic. Yes, yes. Um, Particularly because he's the the one sane man in a system that appears to have been uh, commanded by barely functional morons and yes, yeah. uh, and, and this absolutely absurd situation that he finds himself in the court martial. It's such a song story and such a easily empathetic one for the, the kind of just this absolute insanity of war. Uh, right, particularly was, that first World War One meat grinder. It's a uh, just a terrific performance from him. I was totally unprepared for. I'll tell you, the first scene that really caught me off guard is when General Moreau is is touring the trenches, and and even as yeah. German artillery is raining around them, and everyone's sort of smiling because you just pretend that's not happening. Yes. Um. Well, while, while Moreau is on deck, um, and the camera follows him through the trenches, and 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 it seems time so that every time he passes a junction, he passes through, and then behind him, the sort of wounded men come limping out and about, so yeah. he doesn't he doesn't have to see any sign of frailty because that sort of thing just doesn't happen even though you can see it happening i'm telling you it doesn't happen and i was so i was so blindsided by um the point at which he comes across a group of men and he attempts to engage one of them who's just a quivering wreck yeah and his response to um the guy's comrades telling him that he's shell-shocked is to start slapping the guy about the face saying Mm. how pathetic a notion it is that something like that exists and we all we all know that happened, and it's only really recently, with um, you know, since the latterly since the the Gulf Wars and whatnot, that people have really spoken about PTSD in any depth, and uh, we now know it's very much a real um, mental condition. Yeah. That we all know that's gone on, and people have spoken about it, and I've seen any number of documentaries about it, but to actually see it presented as it must have been on screen, yeah. and people's <laughs> blind refusal to accept it. And simply as it being a figment of someone's imagination and slapping a grown man about for yeah. for having endured such trauma that he is now a complete physical and mental wreck really caught me off guard and was really affecting. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? I really wasn't expecting this to be so critical of the whole kind of military-industrial complex, if you like, um, and the whole uh, military attitudes in, mm. well, you say World War One, really, all wars. All wars. Uh, it's because war never changes Uh, but it's just such a I wasn't expecting it because especially in this era I mean we spoke about it briefly in the terms of fear and desire and it's the same kind of things that are popping up here but this is I think perhaps how uh, Kubrick would have wanted to explore them Uh, this is you know much more professionally presented and it does have a you know it's a a damning critique really um, Mm. 
of of the whole system at the time. And yeah, it's, it's no surprise. I mean, I was looking at a poll of uh, directors as to what the best Kubrick films are, and basically it's it's a, a tied with either this one or two thousand and one. And I can see why it's held in uh, so well regarded. It probably isn't this best film for me. I prefer his later works, but mm-hmm. I can I can very much see the argument for it. Uh, yeah, being so high up, there's a purity to it, and it's actually it's the subject matter it deals with and the time it deals with is something you would expect of a director with the heft that he would only achieve later on. Yes, um, where he was basically able to write his own checks and indulge himself as much as he wanted in the pursuit of his artistic goals, rather than someone who's still working with a studio. And I want it's it's the first of his films that's made me want to read deeper into the the production actually, and and I will research it further because you have to have the sneaking suspicion that what Kirk Douglas and Kubrick probably would have liked to have done would make this a film about American troops and American leadership. But yeah. that would have very much been a, a, a step too far. Um, yeah. And there is no way, regardless of who you were, that you would have gotten that through the American studio system at, at, at that point in history. Um, but a fascinating film and really the first where you feel like Kubrick is is approaching sort of all guns blazing, certainly, um, and, and firing on all, all cylinders and definitely a film that I'll I'll come back to and yeah. you're probably going to hear me say that a, a lot about these works from this point onwards but yeah if you haven't seen Paths of Glory it's very much a, a, a touchstone picture um, both in the genre of war movies but also uh, I guess Kubrick's career arc it's the, it's the first film that you really have to pay attention to um, yes. and I would certainly recommend that you do so Yes, if if you're attempting some sort of investigation, this is really where you start, I think. Yeah, we probably could have started this podcast here, but uh, yeah, for the sake of completion, we wanted to look a little bit as early works. But yeah, this is this is very much where the the engine starts revving. So, yeah. and then we move on to Spartacus, which I'll I'll let you introduce, Scott. Yeah, um, probably a step down. Actually, um, it's rather more likely to be one of the films that Kubrick himself would disown. I mean, he described himself quite famously as being merely the highest paid member of the crew uh, in this film rather than the director of it. He was you know, enthralled to the producer's wissies, uh, Kirk Douglas, again starring in this almost entirely inauthentic look at the Third Servile Wars in ancient Rome, uh, but with Spartacus for some reason recast as a hybrid of Jesus and Moses rather than the intriguing military commander and warlord that the real Spartacus wound up being. Um, it rather shows its age these days. Uh, well, before getting that, I suppose we should say that Spartacus himself, if you've not heard the story or seen the film, which I find difficult to believe, but uh, he was a, a slave who was taken into a gladiator school, uh, trained up by Peter Ustinov, and then uh, after a, a fracas, he manages to escape. Um, and with the rest of the gladiators, he raves a, raises a slave revolt, uh, which takes up most of... I think that was the northern part of Italy, if memory serves me. And then he, yeah, which causes, of course, the armies of Rome to have to come back and, and deal with this this upstart who's been running around kind of raising hell. Now, in the, the film, he's just purely regarded as having to, as being concerned with freeing slaves and then returning home uh, by some pirate, by some uh, ships that are arranged by one of uh, Rome's uh military competitors. This is a complete fabrication. The, the real Spartacus, <laughs> especially as everyone turns, was, was essentially just rowing around uh, Italy being a warlord. And it's a really a fascinating story, particularly because all the sources you get are you're clearly tainted by uh, the, 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 the times. They, they don't want to have any kind of uh, support for this character who might you know start another slave revolt so all the the sources are kind of poisoned and it's only kind of in later times we tried to piece back uh, what happened with the exactly what happened in these these wars and it makes for a really fascinating story and there's a really great story about the 
the actual uh, goings on, or at least as best as we can tell from Spartacus, and uh, that could be made. But this is not that film. No, uh, <laughs> this is. Uh, in my money, it's it's still it's a kind of low rent epic. In my opinion, I think mm. it shows its age these days. Uh, there's some particularly unconvincing painted backdrops that kind of spoil the kind of epic feel that it's going for. And Kirk Douglas is significantly more wooden in this film than he was even three years ago. Uh, it's kind of made up for in the acting terms by two amazing supporting turns from Peter Ustinov and Charles Lawton. Yeah. Uh, but not really to the extent needed. And I find it, overall it's just a little bit dreary. And when you think that two years later you'll have uh, Lawrence of Arabia to deal with, then it kind of makes this look a little bit tawdry in comparison. But and again, mm. what film isn't? Uh, Spartacus, I don't think, is anything like his best film. I don't really enjoy it all that much, uh, particularly when Peter Ustinov's not on the screen. <laughs> it might as well be watching something entirely different. It is, for all that, not terrible. Um, still, I... technically, it has its, has its moments, and particularly the, scene, the shots when it's actually out on location look mm-hmm. really good. Absolutely spectacular. It's only kind of when they mix it in with some soundstage footage that doesn't look anything like as good. Uh, it kind of jar- jars a little bit. But yeah, I'm no great fan of Spartacus and I don't really recommend it. I, I broadly speaking, I think I'm probably safe to say from that that I enjoy Spartacus maybe slightly more than you do, but certainly not as, not really on a technical level or, you know, as this sort of revered cultural artifact or, or anything like that, because it's none of those things. But purely, I think, as an example of a, a type of filmmaking that just isn't around anymore, I think it's an easily digestible watch from within that sort of swords and sandals um yeah. epic genre it's probably not the best example of it by by any means uh you're probably looking at ben-hur or something like that but it's one of those films that people seem a lot of people seem surprised to to learn it's a yeah. kubrick film yeah. and that, that probably tells you something um so i think yeah safe to say the director himself probably tried to distance himself from it in in latter years and it's not really ever played up as a kubrick film it's always played up as a a genre you know an epic genre movie and 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 very little else and i find it enjoyable for that but it's it safely falls within the 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 sort of the lesser half of the the list of movies or probably lesser third of movies that we'll be looking at on this list in in my opinion yeah kubrick himself was you know he talked quite often about trying to make a a, a proper a properly historically authentic uh, movie, not specifically Spartacus, um, but he, he never quite got around to that. I think there was uh, plans for a Napoleon biopic and things like that that mm-hmm. never quite made it. Um, but I kind of wonder how m- my opinion of this film has been shaped by it being, you know, an out and out lie. You know, this is this is yeah. clearly not Spartacus's tale. Um, if you called this something different, like I say, ooh, maybe Gladiator, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, as as it kind of did a few years, many years later. Yeah. If my opinions would be different on it, and I suspect it probably would have done if this was something presented as you know purely fictional or you know inspired by the the era, era rather than. So somewhat disingenuously claiming to be something of a historical document, then uh, perhaps I'd feel somewhat different of it. But just I find it annoying that there's such a, a complex historical tale there that could be told, and we've been told the rather simplistic free the, free the slaves uh, Romans are bad thing. It, for, for better or worse, it feels more like a it feels more like a vanity project for Kurt Douglas, to be honest. Where yeah. he's taken on this heroic role and surrounded himself with um, sort of big budget name actors um, and thrown so much at the screen that you just hope. A, a great deal of it will stick, but it's in, it's interesting for a number of reasons, and I wouldn't say you know if you if 
you are one of the five people who hasn't seen Spartacus on the planet. I'm not going to tell you not to watch it, but you probably shouldn't prioritize it over some of the uh, the movies we'll speak about in a in a bit. Yeah. Um, that takes us on to Lolita in 1962, which was Kubrick's first film um, made in the UK, having moved permanently f- from uh, from stateside. And it's the only film on this list that I haven't been able to watch. So Scott, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you do the talking. Yeah, I don't know if he'd moved permanently at this point. Uh, my my recollection was that it was done because Peter Sellers was in the middle of a divorce proceedings, and uh, they had to kind of move it to the UK to kind of accommodate that. Uh, if nothing else, Lolita shows that Kubrick was not afraid to take risks, adapting uh, Nabokov's controversial novel, to say the least, uh, in what I assume is an attempt to at least pay lip service to the motion picture production code. It's been somewhat defanged, particularly if you read this li- literally. Uh, but there is enough sort of nudges and winks that kind of uh, that kind of show that it's kind of assuming that you're in on the deal. Although even by itself, it's uh, still a controversial story. Uh, that story being of a deluded middle-aged literature professor, uh, played by played by James Mason, named uh, Hubert Humbert, an Englishman who becomes infatuated with his landlady's flirtatious fourteen-year-old daughter Lolita, played by Sue Lyon. Um, however, in the fullness of time, there's competition for her affections with the uh, mysterious screenwriter slash huckster Claire Quilty, played by Peter Sellers, which of course leads to an eventual nonce-off. It's nonce is it done? It's uh. It, it's actually, in my opinion, given a, a rather light-hearted touch, especially given the dark nature of what we're talking about here, uh, which is child abuse, of course. Uh, you're yeah. you're asked to view this with the same kind of moral delusions that the main character has, and I suppose that's a testament to the lead performances, uh, lead performers, performers that they can carry us some of the way down that road. Uh, the tagline, of course, for this film was, how did they ever make a movie of Lolita? And they did it by compromising the novel into something of a different story. Whereas Yes, they, they did it by not making yeah. a movie of Lolita, by all accounts. Yes, the, uh, the, the novel's 12-year-old daughter become a 14-year-old, which is still disgusting enough, but um, it, it kind of becomes a tale more of a, kind of her burge, her realization of her sexuality being used to have a power over men than it does being something that is just, you know, completely, well, off the pale pedophilia. Uh, but that's not to say that it's entirely unsuccessful in telling its own story, but it's not the same beast at all. Uh, regardless of that, it's, it's certainly much more thought a much more thought-provoking movie than almost all recent releases, so it is worth looking out on that basis alone. It does have a terrific performance uh, from James Mason, Who's you know it clearly is a very difficult role for anyone to take on. Uh, it's also a pretty interesting role from Peter Sellers, not the best in a, a Kubrick film, which we'll talk about next. Um, but uh, it's it it has many interesting points, but I think it's 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 either had to round off enough corners that it doesn't feel quite the it doesn't have the punch that it should do, or it doesn't have the the kind of impact that it does. It, it's a it's a it's an odd little fruit, and I'm not kind of un unsure still about how I feel about this film I'd not seen it until a couple of weeks back and it's it's tough to say that I enjoyed it but at the same time I have been thinking about it quite a lot and it's certainly nothing else that made me go off and start to read the, the Nabokov novel so it, it's succeeding on a number of levels I suppose and it's it has its moments it, again you know stagecraft the way everything's shot the way the framing of the scenes are uh, all technically more than sound look, looks like a very good film uh, in that regard, however, it's it, 
it succeeds just about on its own terms. But when you think about the kind of wider ramifications of both its uh, what we'd have for society and the, the source material that it came from, um, on that basis, it's not successful. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. I can't say that I enjoy it much. It's, it's much lower on my list of uh, Kubrick films, but still, it's certainly a Kubrick film. And for that reason, it's worth looking at. Uh, yeah. And probably the first instance, maybe most notable for being the first instance of uh, Kubrick as a director willing, uh, willingly tackling a, a difficult subject matter. Absolutely, he's, he's not yeah. a director who is a, who is afraid to approach difficult subject matter. So, uh, I mean, hats off to him. But I will definitely catch up with Lita at some point. But the, do you know what the real reality of the situation is? That I got to last night. Um, and I knew I wouldn't have time to watch anything today. I had two movies on this list left to watch, and I had to make a choice between Lolita, Lolita, sorry, and Barry Lyndon. The absolute truth of the matter is that with a daughter myself, I just didn't want to approach that subject matter. Yeah. <laughs> and I went with Barry Lyndon. And I think on on both accounts, that was probably the right choice, but we'll, yeah, we'll so move on to so. that later. Yes. yes. So moving swiftly on from Lolita to Doctor Strangelove in 1964, and I am ashamed to say that again, until two nights ago, I had somehow circumvented watching Doctor Strangelove up until this point in my life. I'm actually um, really glad it's worked out that way. Because uh, <laughs> I uh, I watched Doctor Strangelove a long time ago and absolutely loved it. And but every time I've gone back to it, it's never it's not the sort of comedy that really gains a lot of uh, a lot on repeat viewing. Mm. So I I would be able to talk about it now and tell you how much I like it, but I couldn't bring the kind of enthusiasm which I hope that you'll be able to bring to it, having just seen it for the first time. <laughs> I was re- I was absolutely blown away. Um, no pun intended. Um, but the the thematic content of this movie. But I, obviously, broadly, I knew exactly what Doctor Strangelove was, as I suspect a lot of people who haven't yeah. who haven't seen the movie do. It's again, it's very much one of those sort of touchstone movies of the the modern era, and I was. I was pleasantly surprised almost to find that it was every bit as good as I've I've <laughs> been told, although I can understand what you're saying about perhaps maybe on repeat view and one might not take as, as much away. Um, but fascinating to see that it probably to this day probably remains the darkest satire on war um, mm-hmm. ever committed to celluloids. Um, and reteaming the director was Sterling Hayden, who plays Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper. Um, <laughs> there's a fantastic... <laughs> There's a fantastic line of character naming in this, of which yeah. my favourite is Bat Guano, <laughs> yeah. which had me had me chuckling childishly for a good five minutes um, before I'd even started watching the film. Um, who I'm plays- not sure it really beats out General Buck Turgidson. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing, but Jack, Jack T. Ripper is an unhinged U.S. Air Force base commander <laughs> obsessed with the the creeping communist threat, uh, and who's <laughs> to her bodily fluids, to her, to her precious bodily fluids, whose air, whose aircraft are currently deployed on a nuclear armed exercise just outside of Soviet airspace, um, and who takes it upon himself to sever all communication between his his base and the outside world. Um, and subsequently issues his aircraft with a non-retractable order to commence nuclear bombing of Russia, um, <laughs> leaving his baffled colleagues within the military and government merely an hour to save the world from Armageddon. Uh, if that sounds as though it's far too dark a subject matter to uh, to to make light of, then consider that this film was produced pretty much at the height of the Cold War, when people were <laughs> people were genuinely living their lives in fear of nuclear Armageddon. Um, and yeah, Kubrick thought the best way to handle that, and he's probably right. In, in retrospect, but was to basically step up and have a right good laugh at the situation. Um, 
strange love makes just as damning a case against the insanity of following orders at all costs as did paths of glory seven years previously i would argue um albeit from a very different end of the the spectrum yeah um i was i was i was so engaged by this movie for every minute and i'll tell you what the biggest surprise to me was was having you know only Having having only really lived Strange Love vicariously through other people um, who have seen it and raved about it over the years, um, the, the people's touchstone for this movie is always cited as being Peter Sellers and the fact that he took on three key and very different roles within this movie. Mm. Um, and on more than one occasion, I've been told, you know, it's Peter Sellers' show. He's the film's engine entirely. And the greatest pleasure for me in watching Doctor Strangelove was to actually find out that that is a total disservice to the rest of the central cast, who yeah. are uniformly excellent. And I'll tell you, in particular, Sterling Hayden, yes. who I wasn't expecting that comic turn from, and who is absolutely not perfect in dialogue, in posture, in every aspect of his performance it was such a thoroughly enjoyable movie dealing with such a terrible subject matter um and you know in such a in such a preposterous lampooning style that you can't really take it seriously um but i can i can absolutely see why this is is on so many people's sort of top 10 movies lists um and there's a very real danger that i suppose it could find its way it could find its way into my own top 10 um but i will have to give it um i'll have to give it some further watches scott but uh yeah really absolutely fascinating that kubrick again not in the sense that not in the sense that lolita was a, a difficult subject matter for a um for a director to approach but still very much very much a taboo subject at the time for someone especially to poke fun at I suppose and testimony to the fact that quite often the best way to deal with great adversity and fear is to is to try and make fun of it yeah um host to a, a wide number of just landmark kind of comic moments um not just from Peter Sellers but of course these lines like you can't fight in here this is the war room all these kind mm-hmm. of things it's just a very sharp script um very well observed and very funny. Lots of great uh, kind of physical touches of it as well. Um, the kind of <clears throat> also Sellers' performance is just the particularly as, as when he's playing Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, the stiff upper lip British officer who's yeah. the only sane man again in the whole room, <laughs> and trying, stuck, trying desperately yeah, to <laughs> do bargain with the man who's worried about bodily fluids <laughs> yeah, as, as he's firing a fifty caliber machine gun out the window of his office at his own troops. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so many just wonderful little bit absurd. Uh, situations that it finds itself in uh, if I am going to be the the kind of critical one which I suppose I should do it's kind of my function here uh, is that it's a very broad satire it's uh, uh-huh, very uh-huh. obvious in what it's doing so while the, the, I don't think you'll really get a lot more out of it the next time you go back to it like you know, something like I don't know a Coen Brothers comedy where there's always kind of layers to kind of go through yeah, this one is yeah. very, um, very straightforward and direct but that's no uh, detriment to it. Certainly, as you probably learned from the first time watch it, it's just absolutely mm. astonishing. Uh, no, a, re- a real comic tour de force. There's no great nuance to those character performances. They are yeah. out-and-out sort of comic performances. Um, and what, what surprised me about it is that I suppose people think of Kubrick as a very serious filmmaker, but on this evidence, he quite clearly has a sense of humour and, and an impeccable understanding of comedy and, and comic timing. I mean, it's not just down to his cast that this, is, this movie performs so successfully. Um, and also, I'll tell you what was really interesting 
for me was that, you know, as notorious a perfectionist as Kubrick was and given his propensity for, you know, doing sort of 60 plus takes of any given scene sort of quite routinely, yeah. um, like, you know, Stanley Kubrick's, you know, average number of takes across his career for any one given scene is probably in the region of about 30 to 40, <laughs> um, if, if people's accounts uh, are, are to be believed. And there's one or two points in this, and specific, specifically there's a, there's a point at which... Um, Peter Sellers as Doctor Strangelove is going into one of his uh, one of his fits in his wheelchair again, sort of trying to take control <laughs> yeah. of his rogue arm. Where where Peter Bull, who plays the Russian ambassador, um, quite quite visibly corpses, <laughs> and is doing his best not to burst out laughing. And and honestly, I wouldn't have expected that in a Stanley Kubrick film. I wouldn't have imagined he would be the kind of you know, given his reputation, yeah. that he would have let that anywhere near the final cut. But <laughs> there's there's a there's a real joy in this movie, and and I like to think that everybody involved had you know a, a really good time. Whether whether or not everybody did, I don't know. But you know, um, what what just an outright and and crucially, I think even though I mean this this film is how old now? What nineteen sixty four? So fifty, you know, this film's over fifty years old now, and actually a lot of, a lot of that comedy would feel fairly. Although, as you say, it's painted in fairly broad strokes. I mean, it wouldn't be out of place in a in a sketch show or something today. It's it still feels quite fresh, and um, yeah, it's just just a really wonderful, quite rounded movie. As you say, I'm not sure if it will hold up um, particularly well to repeat viewing, but. To, to have watched this now at this point in my life, where I feel like, yeah, I'm I'm of an age now where I can I kind of appreciate that humour uh, around that situation. Then I'm really glad that I watched Doctor Strange Love now, um, and yeah, I feel I feel bad about not having watched it sooner, but perhaps it was for the best because I really really thoroughly enjoyed it, really enjoyed it, and I think it deserves all the praise that's been heaped on it, and 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 then some. Yeah, it certainly does, and I think I think pretty much from this point onwards we can. Um, well, maybe Eyes Wide Shut's an exception, but I can I can more or less uniformly say just you need to watch all these films. Certainly from this point on in his career, uh, all his films are have something to to warrant recommending them, and so you probably won't hear me say that anymore because just take it as read. If you've not seen anything past Doctor Strange, love you really mm. should. Um, but now mm-hmm. we're getting into some of his more uh, uh, popular and well regarded uh, works, iconic so, works. Yeah, yeah. So this is. Uh, but certainly, Doctor Strange Love is a, a comic masterpiece and uh, definitely deserves looking at. And and as you say, given that we still have nuclear weapons, the actual content matter of it hasn't really aged uh, in, in the way you might expect something. This <laughs> well, the, the way the way the way Putin's brandishing his dick at the moment, then um, yeah, it, do, it doesn't feel all that out of the out of the question even now. Um, some of these B-52s are still flying as well so yes. there you go <laughs> but listen Scott that takes us on to 2001 A Space Odyssey and I'm going to let you speak about that yes the other iconic uh, well sorry the other one that would be kind of put at the top of people's lists particularly that director's list I was thinking of there's an awful lot on technical levels to like about 2001 Space Odyssey um, it's hard to say if you've not seen it uh, how much detail we need to go into the plot but it mm. starts off uh, famously of course with the um a group of monkeys and a monolith on Earth. Uh, this mysterious monolith somehow uh, affects humankind's evolution, teaches us to use tools and become masters of the planet, and which point that, you know, there's a very famous dissolve uh, or the cut to the from the bone being thrown into the air to a space station, which finds us uh, more regarding... Uh, in, in, in contemporary times, looking at a moon base, eventually, which ha- we've managed to dig up another monolith. And the... the, the Following the chain from there, we were investigating this monolith uh, on a moon base. Uh, 
2001 a bit of an, an ambitious date as it turns out not quite managed to reach the level of technology we've <laughs> got it, there yeah if it had been about man obtaining the smartphone then yes, we, yeah <laughs> we, we've not quite uh, managed to have space Leonard Rossiter uh, so far <laughs> but, uh, we'll uh, get there man we'll get there <laughs> uh, so this this uh, monolith sends a, a burst of energy which is directed over at Jupiter so the next step of course is to send a manned mission out which is the, the real uh, beat of the of this film where uh, a scientific vessel uh, headed up by Dr. Dave Bowman, Rekir Duella, and Frank Poole's Gary Lockwood. Uh, Dr. Frank Poole, played by Gary Lockwood, is sent off uh, under with some other scientists in suspended animation out to Jupiter to investigate what the hell is going on with that. Uh, they're aided in their quest by HAL 9000, the intelligent computer, the artificial intelligence that is helping to run the system. And of course, the main uh, interesting thing of this film is that the AI goes rogue after uh, in, in a way that is not actually defined narratively in this film mm, uh, mm. and then decides to go off and eventually kill everyone that's on the, on the ship uh, but thanks to some ingenu- ingenuity uh, Dr. Dave Bowman survives and makes his way through to Jupiter where point the film goes entirely off the rails and he turns into a space baby um, it's <laughs> it, this is one of these films that I have Seen a long time from since my school days, uh, I believe it was uh-huh. the first time I tried to watch this. But the, the problem with that is when you're younger and they start showing these films at eleven o'clock, as they invariably did. By the yeah. time you got to that bit at the end, it would just go entirely off, entirely insane with all these psychedelic uh, influences, and you would not really know through your fog of tiredness if this was something that was wrong with the film or something wrong with you. Um, you, would, you would struggle even to masturbate to it, Scott. In, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Uh, but the more I've revisited 2001, and for its faults, is a film that I've revisited a number of times through the years. Yeah, I think it is a fault with the film. Uh, I, I find 2001 to be technically absolutely astonishing, particularly yeah. for the time. Narratively, a complete disappointment. Yeah, um, I mean, far too abstract. Yeah, in uh, parts. And I mean, we're not going to get into the the many, many ways you could interpret what happens in this film, both at the start <laughs> and the end. Yes, yeah, so with, with or without the, the use of performance-enhancing drugs as, as many people throughout the intervening years have yes. done. What, what I think grinds my gears about this is that every single one of these interpretations, no matter how insane they may appear to be, is as relevant as anything else because there is no context or information given in the film for uh-huh. you to do anything other than just speculate wildly. So yeah. everything's as much as each other. I mean, it's often you know claimed that you have to they have to make an entire other film just to explain this one with 2010, yep. which I think is given 2010 a bit of a disservice. Um, yeah. But <laughs> yep. but um, yeah, it, it's clearly a film that is. Uh, it, it, I don't know if it's biting off more than it can chew. I just think that it doesn't actually chew anything. Um, it, there's a an interview that I think was given to Brian Aldiss, who I can't remember if he did some work on this or something else with Kubrick, where uh, he was talking about how Kubrick was less concerned with narrative as, a, as an overarching thing, and he was more concerned with being able to break it down into a number of sort of distinct scenes that could be done. So a couple of distinct points. So you got point one, the monolith yeah. appears. Point two, go to the moon. Da 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 da. Well, but for me, the question there is to none what of it end? joins up. None yeah. of this joins up. So you have lots of little individual scenes, none of which actually are connected to each other, um, and that's my my real 
a problem with 2001 AD. There's no flow to this film. It's just here's a bit, here's another bit, here's another bit, here's another bit. And the, the linking between those is almost non-existent. It's uh, almost, I agree with you entirely, absolutely 100%. And for me, it's always bordered on being more of, you know, a two-hour art installation than it yes. has a, a motion picture um, that's designed, you know, for people to sit in a, a theatre auditorium or, you know, at home and uh, digest it that way. Uh, it's always been... And people talk about, I find it remarkable because people talk about Kubrick as being a cold filmmaker. Um, yeah. and I, and if anything, the last week, uh, or fortnight of, of, uh, reviewing this back catalogue has shown me that's patently nonsense. Um, but in the interest of 2001, if 2001 is your entry point to Kubrick, then I can understand why people would say that because narratively, contextually, um, even sort of in terms of that whole middle section, uh, even just with the, with, with Bowman and, and Lockwood, it, it's so difficult to engage with so much of it. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the counter-argument that was always made to that is that this was a... They shouldn't be going off into hysterics or having any like huge emotional impact because they're trained professionals and they're going about their job in a trained professional way, which I kind of understand, but the counterpoint to that counterpoint is it's not a bloody documentary. I would like <laughs> to be entertained. You know? So, <laughs> swings and roundabouts. <laughs> it's so true, though. It's so true. Um, it's... It definitely is a film most notable for its technical accomplishment. And what I'll say for 2001 is this. I routinely watch movies now made in the modern era, modern era, sorry, whose effects work is inferior to yeah. 2001. It really is a startling looking uh, film. And it's, what, uh, 2001, it was made in 1968. So what, we're talking 40 odd years before the invention of Blu-ray. And really, mm. Blu-ray is probably the first format um, available for uh, for home users that has been able to do this film any sort of visual justice. Um, anything less than than uh, good old 1080p H two six four has yeah. has not done this film the service it requires. Especially, you, especially given the mess Warner Brothers routinely makes of well all DVD releases, but his in particular. His in particular, yes. yes. Um, yeah, I think um, two thousand one again. It's not one of those films that are going to say don't watch it because again, it's it's still an iconic movie that you. I suppose you kind of have to to at least watch the you have to form an opinion about it one way or another if you want to be involved in the you know a discussion about the lexicon of modern cinema yeah. but i find yeah i find it i find it annoying from a personal point of view that over the years so many people that i've spoken to about it who revere the movie just well sorry if you don't enjoy it you just clearly haven't understood it no, as as you quite rightly point out, there's not necessarily anything there to understand and and to attribute to attribute a thought or a context to the movie that clearly wasn't the director's intention does not make you <laughs> does mm. not make you right, and it doesn't yeah. make you more intelligent than someone else uh, who who hasn't enjoyed the film to uh, to anything like the same degree. So yeah. it, it is very much again. I, I'm not going to advocate that people don't watch it, but it, it is. It's safely in the. Oh, are we going to get hate mail, Scott? If I say that it's safely in the bottom half of my Kubrick list. Um, I mean, I, I would say the same, but this is probably more a reflection on the quality of everything else, isn't it? Rather than a lack of quality in two thousand and one. Um, as I say, I don't enjoy Very it narratively, true. but on a technical level, I can't help but be impressed for almost all of the two and a half hours that I'm watching it. Mm. Uh, 
only very small elements of it have not held up. For example, the bit at the start, um, it's pretty obviously guys in monkey suits. Um, yeah. that's, that has not uh, not survived really transition else uh, too well, but everything else really has done, and it looks and there's quite a, there's spectacular. A bit of, there's a bit of stop motion when one of the guys is outside the... Uh, when the airline is cut and he's left to float off into space, there's a bit of stop motion animation on the thing that, that hasn't held up too well either. Yes, but but again, between that and just that's the... That's nitpicking. The, kind of, the, the futurism that um, Stanley... Uh, sorry, uh, Arthur C. Clarke uh, brought to this. Obviously, t- temporarily not accurate. Uh, we, we do not have our uh, Virgin Atlantic space planes just no. yet. Um, but I think an awful lot of it, in sort of the general terms of what it was kind of doing to predict the future and you know, iPads and all these kind of things, it, it's actually come through. So on, on these kind of interest, these, uh, on that basis, just from the, the kind of terms of it being a, a vision of the future, which was not absolutely insane, uh, this is still really actually not too dissimilar to the kind of directions that we are thinking about going if we've not quite been able to do it with the various challenges to the space programs in mm. recent years. Uh, but it's still no less accurate for that. Um, and so th- there's an awful lot of reasons to recommend it, even though I don't actually enjoy it all that much as a film. So, yeah, even if you just prepare yourself for the fact that you might not be thinking that it is absolutely so strong as its perhaps reputation would d- expect you to have it's still very much worth watching yeah let me reassure you that if you get to the end of this movie having never seen it before and your immediate thought is is that it you are not alone (laughs) (laughs) you you you're not alone um and you know what i'm gonna let you talk about clockwork orange as well scott um from 1971 because in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways i feel very similarly to about that movie as i do about 2001 yes uh clockwork orange you're a a futuristic Britain. Uh, it's uh, obviously, of course, based on the novel uh, from Anthony Burgess. It's it's a complicated little tale. This, particularly when you start thinking about it, and I think we are going to record a commentary on this one. So, don't perhaps not want to get into too mm. much depth about mm. it. But uh, the film itself is centered around Malcolm McDowell's Alex, who is a violent young psychopath who runs a, a small gang of his friends. He's you know, nominally in school, but with his uh, rather hopeless parents, he's allowed to essentially go off and do whatever the hell he likes in this kind of somewhat lawless society. So he spends his nights uh, taking what appears to be, you know, variants of drugs mixed with milk and going off on violent rampages with uh, either fighting rival gangs or going off and um, robbing and raping and pillaging various uh, otherwise upstanding members of society. Um, This kind of comes to a cropper when he is busted for it and is subjected to Ludovico technique a, uh, in, a, in a bid to kind of shorten his jail time. He is subjected to some psychological brainwashing, which will make him uh, physically wretch at, at the thought of carrying out violence or uh, any kind of sexual uh, hate crimes or anything like that. Uh, the overarching nature of this, of course, being that if you take away someone's right to actually choose if you take away someone's free will in this matter, is he actually making any kind of choice? And so on and so forth. You can kind of see where that's going and eventually that uh, it all kind of falls apart. Uh, this, he's managed to be able to get society after some coincidental meetings with some people he was he damaged previously. They're somehow able to kind of get society to reverse this and you know, 
stop the Ludovico technique. But that's that's kind of a sidetrack. You're really more concerned with this with Alex himself and his his narration. Of course, he's he doesn't see what he's doing as being particularly wrong. He's he's quite happy with his uh, little line of psychopathy that he's doing, and he is the kind of the archetype of the the misleading narrator as he's uh, talking about how how much he enjoys this violence and how uh, how it's you know normal to him and uh, how we have to kind of judge him on that and basis his his psychopathy on on those base on that uh, on that basis it's it's a strange thing to talk about because it's I know for a fact that Anthony Burgess the, the actual writer doesn't agree with what Stanley Kubrick's done in a lot of this. It, oh. it was routinely, this is one of the, the original video nasties in the UK, it was a kind of de facto banned for a long time. It was uh, sort of held up as a, a routine for so long enough that Kubrick himself pulled it from UK uh, releases. And it's got such a, a reputation for glorifying violence, which Kubrick was absolutely against. Uh, and he, he, I've seen lots of interviews where he's routinely uh, uh, dismissing this and how he's, he's not glorifying violence at all. And you need to kind of make up I mean, it's, it's it's very clear from what uh, Alex is doing, uh, the Malcolm McDowell's character, that clearly he's in the wrong and he's, he's you know, blatantly a psychopath. But at the same time, everything that's done is done in such a light-hearted tone that it's kind of it kind of underlies that message and, and I, approached I, stylistically from a sort of a, a very appealing sort of aesthetic. Yes, I mean, I agree with absolutely everything that. Uh, Kubrick has said in this film about about his film in regards to his depiction of violence, but I just don't think he's made the film that he thinks he's made. I mean, he's, I mean, he, it, a lot of this actually to me really does feel like it's glorifying violence. Um, it, I mean, it certainly is. It's very easy to to look at what's happening on, on the terms and you know come to the conclusion that Malcolm McDowell is, of course, his character is a, you know, a violent psychopath and despicable in all nature. But that is really not how it's presented at all, and you have to keep fighting against that throughout all the way through the film. And perhaps that's why it's so individual and why it's so uh, so compelling to actually watch. So I'm always quite quite drawn into this film. I'm always quite engaged by it. But I don't really agree with a lot of either what Kubrick said about it or the way it's presented in itself. But that doesn't stop it being a tremendously interesting film to watch uh, for those basis um, Malcolm McDowell again of course it's such an iconic performance that he's never really been able to escape from it the poor guy um, <laughs> it seems like almost everything he's done from this has been some kind of derivative of Clockwork Orange uh, even to this day uh, which is a, perhaps a bit of a shame he's got more to the strings to his bow than this but I don't think he gets to, to play that bow particularly often uh, but yeah, it's just one of these things where if the if the actual writer of the novel that it's based on thinks that this actually is glorifying violence and has kind of missed the point, you have to you have to at least question whether Kubrick's right on what he was doing in this one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of interesting aspects to it, and you can probably say I'm, I'm kind of conflicted about it. But then again, it is one of the films of his that I kind of keep coming back to more often than not, purely because of that conflict. And so and, it's stunning on that basis. And else. one which, bafflingly, I feel like a lot of people I know whose opinions I would otherwise trust often cite as being one of their favourite of his movies, but easily one of the one of the few that I have the most problem engaging with. I, I have no problem engaging with it. I have perhaps a problem engaging with it on the level that Kubrick wanted me to engage with it mm. is, is perhaps kind of more accurate. It's, uh, I think it's just such an amazingly interesting film for, for all these reasons, uh, but it doesn't help. Uh, sorry, it's, it's not... Uh, well, the performances around it, of course, are also pretty uh, pretty well-defined, and you know the, 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 the iconic uses of so much stuff, like the, the kind of um, 
synthesizer-based classical music that's used as a score throughout it and all these kind of things. It's just uh, has so many interesting little elements of it and uh, it, it really does manage to engage me quite quite intensely when I'm watching it. But like I say, I, I don't know how I feel about it entirely. It's, it's a little bit mm. iffy on that basis. I find, it, I find it a difficult movie primarily because the all of the characters really um, are so broadly unsympathetic that I, I can't engage with it really emotionally at all, um, and I'm left looking at it almost entirely stylistically, much in the same way as 2001. Mm. So, you know, I think we'll see. We'll see what happens because, like you say, I think we're probably gonna we're probably gonna do this as our commentary uh, following this uh, this podcast. So we'll, he, we'll we'll see how I feel about it. The last time I watched 2001 was when it received its uh, sort of UK cinema. Uh, sorry. 2001. Uh, a Clockwork Orange was shortly after uh, Kubrick's death when it received a reissue in UK cinemas. Um, right. And that would be the last time that I'd I'd watched it. Uh, I've had it, bizarrily enough, I've had it on as kind of a background movie and not paid any attention <laughs> from that one. You will not really paid it, not really paid it attention. Probably should have put on one of the Twilight films instead. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but that was the last time I was actually engaged with it as a viewer. And so we'll see if I feel differently about it because I mean that was a good sort of 15, 16 years ago now. So um, yeah, let's let's see let's see what the the commentary digs up there and perhaps uh, perhaps I'll be forced to reevaluate it. Um, but listen, Scott, there's a new love in my life, and I want to talk a little bit about that love. It's a deep, deep love I have for another of Kubrick's films that I hadn't seen until last night, Barry Lyndon, which has rocketed potentially into my favourite films of all time. I'm going to have to give it a couple of rewatches, but Barry Lyndon, guys, am I right? Am I right? <laughs> uh, it's bizarre in the... You know, amidst this this period of, of Kubrick's uh, work where he was making so many iconic films, Barry Lyndon is such a little-known quantity and so seldom yeah. talked about that um, I was aware of it and I was aware of all the little things like, you know, the letters that Kubrick... Oh, the little story about Kubrick. I, and I think I posted this letter on a Twitter account earlier, the Fuds on Film Twitter account, but, you know, the letter that Kubrick sent to projectionists when the film was shown in the cinema saying, you know, giving them details on how it should be projected and blah, blah, blah. I've never heard anyone else talk about Barry Lyndon. I've never come across anyone else who have, has mentioned it in passing. So I'm 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 left thinking that I've never met anyone else who's seen Barry Lyndon. <laughs> I don't know why this film is kept so quiet within to the point where it's. I don't even think it's had like a. I don't think it's had a Blu-ray and an individual Blu-ray release outside of the US potentially, or maybe one or two territories where perhaps it performed financially better than it did in its home turf. Um, you can only really get this as part of the Kubrick uh, Blu-ray box set. It's baffling, absolutely baffling. Um, but basically, it's it's the story of um, Redmond Barry, adapted from the uh, novel it's itself from a serialisation by um, Thackeray. Um, about the life and times of Redmond Barry, who is an Irish commoner, uh, who, having fallen in love with his cousin, is devastated by her family's plan in which she is complicit to marry her off to a British army captain in order to secure their financial future. 
Barry and also Leonard Rossiter. Yes, also Leonard Rossiter. Yeah, we've not really spoken about uh, Kubrick's method of uh, you know recasting going back to like, particular actors as well, but it's really strange when it's Leonard Rossiter who can only ever see he's <laughs> the guy from Rising Damp, and it's just strange. <laughs> and he's so absolutely fantastic here. Indeed, he is. Yeah. yeah, but Barry and the captain in question, played by Leonard Rossiter, um, Quinn. Uh, pistol duel in the time-honoured notion of either party attaining satisfaction um, <laughs> and b- believing that he's he's killed the officer, Redmond goes on the run to Dublin with whatever money his family can uh, basically spare at the time he's accosted on the way and left penniless by robbers and so seizes the opportunity of an army recruitment drive at the next town and enlists in pursuit of adventure on the fronts of the Seven Year War. My, my favourite of the erroneously uh, <laughs> uh, named wars. <laughs> uh, numerous escapades aside, and those escapades are numerous, of course, across the course of this three hour movie, um, Redmond eventually finds himself romantically involved with the wife of an English aristocrat who is a European court representative of King George III, uh, Lady Honoria Linden. Uh, And upon the passing of her husband, Redmond assumes both her name and the lifestyle of her husband, relishing his new ennobled lifestyle, but struggling to secure his own status and independent wealth. I was so enthralled by Barry Linden in a way that I was not expecting. I, right off the bat, let me tell you that um, judgmental, um, fickle, fool that I am, I am immediately put off by anything um, which is a period drama. And so I only really considered Barry Lyndon uh, on the basis that I wanted to be able to talk about as much of Kubrick's work as I possibly could with you good people listeners. Um, and I have got a new uh, a new uh, favourite movie because everything about Barry Lyndon uh, defied my expectation. Uh, I am baffled to reads today having done some more research about it because I watched this I started watching this at at, uh, at nine o'clock last night so straight to bed afterwards thinking how wonderful it was woke up this morning did a bit of research I'm baffled to find that it kind of splits opinion uh, Barry there are those like myself who absolutely love it and a lot of other people who um who really don't consider it one of the uh, one of Kubrick's best works at all um who cite it as being sleep-inducingly boring, a movie in which nothing happens, which is patently ridiculous. Um, am I, please tell me I'm not alone here, Scott. Did you did you enjoy Barry Lyndon? Because I personally think it's one of the best things I've ever seen committed to celluloid. I enjoyed it an awful lot. Uh, it's an interesting little tale. I mean, it's like yourself, it's one of these things that I bought because it was released on DVD as part of the, the Stanley Kubrick collection by aforementioned release of uh, Warner Brothers' god-awful DVD releases of Kubrick's work. Um, so I've had it sitting on a shelf for, what, like a decade, maybe more, oh. by this point, but I never watched it until two weeks ago. Um, and it is absolutely stunning. Uh, I think you could make a, 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 a probably a very solid case that narratively it's nothing particularly spectacular. It's no. a, a fairly classic tale of... Uh, Rags to rich, well, relatively rags to riches, yeah, a, and then a, rags a, some, yeah. a somewhat romanticised tale. Yes, uh, clearly it's not meant to be taken seriously, um, as the, the narration would would have you believe. Of course, it's uh, that's one of the more interesting things, I guess, on a technical level, is the, the narration that's used to uh, to puncture and uh, mm. counterpoint what's actually happening on the screen, which is quite an interesting tale. But no, well, it's uh, it, it's. I mean, if nothing else, we've not spoken about it so far, but I mean. 
the thing you have to think about when you watch Barry Lyndon is how absolutely beautiful it is. Amazing. I mean, it's an astonishingly short film. Like uh, as I was saying when Bill, as uh, Kubrick was saying, he was basically thinking about how to frame this like a painting of the era, and yeah. so that's what you get. It looks absolutely astonishing for three whole hours. Um, and this, of course, was back from the time when films were kind enough to give you an intermission and actually go off mm-hmm. and be able to refresh yourself in the middle of a film rather than just having you sit through all of it, no matter how boring it is. But I don't think Barry Lyndon's boring at all. I think it's... Uh, it managed to hold my attention pretty well. As I say, you know, narratively, I think you could make a very strong case that it's by no means the strongest of Kubrick's work. But visually, it's astonishing. I, I don't see how anyone can see past that. It just looks so beautiful. Um, and it's... You know, if nothing else, you've got to see it for that reason alone. But um, it's backed up with a solid story. It's got a, a really, mm-hmm. a really nice central performance from Ryan Reel, who manages to kind of come across as uh, you know both trustworthy and sleazy, and oh, you know, he's managed to kind of become a bit of a chameleon through the, through the whole Sur- course of the film. Surprisingly so well. sympathetic. Yes, yes, which is the um, key, I think. Yeah. Uh, see. Look. How, how much more can I say about this film? And it's a film with Stephen Berkoff in it that's not irredeemably terrible. How, <laughs> how unlikely is that? You know, it's a and, and even though it's you could argue that it's somewhat uh, weaker. You know, narratively, it still manages to work in these themes like how the ridiculousness of war. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the scene where it's got the, the, the British army and uh, the French army, I assume it would have been at the time and uh, mm. just the, the standard practice for armies at the time, line up across each other field, mm-hmm. line, up, line up across each other in a field as though you're playing some game of British Bulldog and slowly walk towards each other firing it's, that yeah. was the, the limit of uh, of tactical nous at the time and it's just ludicrous uh, scenes like that um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it I, I don't understand why it would be Held in, in low regard at all, uh, yeah. And I, let's just say I can't I can't overemphasize it enough. It's just such a beautiful film that I can't see why you wouldn't want to watch this film. Well, from a technical standpoint, I mean John Alcott's cinematography. I think there, John Alcott worked with um, Kubrick on three of his movies, right? And I it hmm. was was it two thousand and one Clockwork Orange and this. Or did, no, sorry, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon and The Shining, I think. Mm, I think I'm right. correct yeah. in saying. And this, honestly, if I mean, to look at, and don't get me wrong, The Shining the Shining is another fantastic example of cinematography, but honestly, I cannot see past Barry Lyndon as anything other than, again, it's that thing, I think we discussed it in one of the first podcasts we, we, we did under the, the guise of FUDS on film. But when I spoke about Lawrence of Arabia, Yeah. Um, we spoke about cinematography and look, there may be other films which have which bear the claim as being as good as this but there's nothing better and I honestly think that Barry Lyndon is one of those films, I haven't seen better cinematography just on a visual level, everything about this is so appealing and I am someone who is absolutely turned off by white face powder and curly wigs and men wearing lipsticks and <laughs> socks pulled up to their knees. I just, I've got no time for period drama whatsoever and especially stuff from this period. So for me to have been so engrossed on a technical level, I understand that some people perhaps find parts of the movie slow paced. For me, that was something to enjoy. I, I found, I found myself being able to indulge in the parts of the movie that I wanted to because it is quite so leisurely uh, in its pace. And in all honesty, at any of the other parts where <laughs> any of the parts where it felt like things were flagging, just let your eyes go to any part of the screen <laughs> and just look at the picture coming from your magic talkie box into your <laughs> into your brain. And what is there to complain about, honestly? 
and it's backed up by such uniformly fantastic performances. The other thing as well is that almost every character, no matter how brief their appearance on screen is so wonderfully rounded and mm. everybody there are no there are no villains and there are no heroes in this movie it's very Barry Lyndon is very very I want to say very very specific among movies in that obviously Redmond himself is he's only nominally a hero of the piece he's as you say, he he um, he's a, he's a romantic. He's a guy who wants a better life for himself. But in looking to attain that and going on this sort of very romantic adventure across Europe, um, he also he also conducts himself at times in a way which is reprehensible. Yes. But he's never he's never less than a compelling and sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's so rare to come across a film where sort of really you're being treated as an adult and no one says you, okay here is the here's the protagonist here is the antagonist they shall fight and the protagonist shall come out on top there's there's none of that it's very much just a very realistic sort of um watercolor painting of look here's an episode that happened and, and aren't we funny creatures and doesn't luck play such a large factor in our lives and even people who you think are nice can't they sometimes do really shitty things um <laughs> But that doesn't necessarily make them bad people, and I just found it so engaging, and all of the characters so wonderfully rounded um, that I just I haven't really seen anything quite like it, and I'm baffled as to why people don't talk about this movie more. Really baffled, um, and I really feel like it should have done more for Ryan O'Neill at the time than it did, because purportedly he only got the role because the studio insisted that Kubrick could only make the film to his own specification, if they cast a male lead who was in the sort of the top 10 Hollywood hot actors at the time. And Ryan O'Neill being Irish, obviously, um, was appealing. And he appeared on that list as a blip for, I think, one year or perhaps two years based on the success of a previous movie he'd been in. But originally they wanted, apparently, Robert Redford, um, himself of Irish blood, mm. I think, um, but who wasn't interested in the project or who turned it down for whatever reason. And the fact that this didn't propel Ryan O'Neill um, better into the stratosphere baffles me because I found his performance totally compelling. Yeah, it was certainly a convincing performance. Uh, and it's backed up by a whole raft of them. Mm. Uh, as you say, the characters are just so well observed and uh, nicely rounded that it's easy to believe them. Um, mm. And it's easy to get caught up in, in their uh, their lives. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't understand why it's uh, quite so downplayed. Uh, it deserves much more of a reputation than it has. I mean, I think the only time I'd ever heard this was just in regard to the way that he uses natural light to film everything. It's, uh, right. Uh, and, and the technical developments are to do with Which, that, the whole using lenses that were developed yeah, in the space program, uh, da, 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 but it's so much more than that. And the natural light thing in itself is a fallacy because there was artificial light used. It was, I think, I think the candlelit and mainly the interior scenes and things were, were mostly shot with the natural light and the, the candlelight thing, right, being the technical thing that everybody talks about. Oh, the, the F0.7 lens, Carl's like, da, 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 that's that it, the NASA yeah. lens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, but look, I mean, see, see past that. I mean, that was that's very much a function of aesthetic and, and a very nice aesthetic it is as well. But I honestly think if people are spending so much time, too much time obsessing over that and these strange people who, and, and I know that Warner Brothers, um, who's the guy who's the technical advisor to the Kubrick estate now that he's passed away again? Mm, good who advises you. on the presentation and whatnot of his movies. I can't forget his name, but he's, he's basically an idiot. Um, <laughs> who doesn't understand aspect ratio and a lot of people have 
spent an awful lot of time that would have been better served just sitting and watching and appreciating the movie, apparently bitching and moaning about the aspect ratio at which this is being presented by Warner Brothers on the Blu-ray versions which are available, um, and over such a minimalist difference in aspect ratio, claiming that it's been butchered, that I can't help but think, are you, are you interested in the film? Or are you purely interested in an argument over technical detail? Because I'm more interested in the film. And the technical detail which is there is astonishing enough in and of itself. And it's just a fantastically involving film. It's a real Mm. oddity amongst his catalogue. And I was so pleasantly surprised by it. And I'm really looking forward to watching it again. Um, It's not Leon Vitale, is it? Yes, it may well be. Mm. It may well be. Um, who a man who apparently has got aspect ratio back back to front. So the the <laughs> estate the estate of one of the most technical filmmakers of all time has entrusted his legacy and its presentation for the foreseeable future to a man who who has argued that one <laughs> was it one seven five to one is a broader aspect or sorry not as narrow an aspect ratio ratio as one six six to one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a man for whom maths is no obstacle to I opinion. Can, I can only imagine that Kubrick is spinning in his grave. Um, but there you go. I think anyone, honestly, I think people have been far too sidelined by that sort of stuff to to actually appreciate what's in front of them. And do you know what? If 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 the vast majority of other people want to pass over, oddly pass over this this film in Kubrick's catalogue, that's fine because I am going to be happy to enjoy this film to myself to the rest of time. I absolutely loved it and I never thought in a million years I would feel that way about a three hour period, authentic period drama. Um, but there you go. Yeah, I mean, even if you come down the other side of the debate and you do think this is actually a boring film and you don't like the narrative or whatever, then if nothing else, you have to watch it at least once because it's a three-hour scene of some of the most beautiful scenes you'll see in film. Mm -hmm. And if if that's not enough of a recommendation to actually make you watch it, then I don't really know what is. So, you know, get yourself sorted out. I'm constantly baffled by people who say, oh, nothing happened in this film. This is a film in which... It, it takes almost three hours to describe the plot fully. The guy takes part in the Seven Year War. There's at least three sort of battle skirmishes that we see. There's what three pistol duels. There's all yeah. sorts of shenanigans going on. There's an orgy. There's there's all sorts of stuff. Nothing happens in this film. Apparently, I can only imagine these are the same people who. Um, I remember making the comment at the time. I might have I might have made it in my written review of Superman Returns. People who complained about Superman Returns, nothing happens as well. This is a film in which a man lifts a <laughs> continent on his shoulders and you want to tell me that nothing happens in it. And the same it must be the same people who are talking about Barry Lyndon, man. I just don't understand. I just, if you haven't watched it, please I beseech you, check it out. And if you want to argue the detail of it with me afterwards or, or tell me that I'm wrong, brilliant. Find me on any number of social media channels, but please just go and watch it because not enough people have watched this movie. So yeah, segueing seamlessly on, Scott, to uh, 1980s The Shining. Yes. Okay, so The Shining sees aspiring writer Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, of course, so iconically, uh, take a job in the Outlook Hotel, basically taking care of this uh, remote hotel over the winter months when it would be snowed in and generally being a a caretaker for when it will be uh, otherwise disused. So he goes up to this isolated Outlook Hotel and then before long, uh, with his family, uh, Wendy, played by Shelley Duvall, and his young child, Danny Torrance, played by Danny Lloyd, 
And so while he settles in, he thinks this will be an ideal time to outline some new projects and uh, basically get some peace and quiet to work on his ideas. Uh, before long, uh, weird things start to happening, like Vanilla Ice trying to rap again. And <coughs> we are very soon uh, taken into a world of uh, strange uh, occurrences and, you know, what and blood emanating forth from elevators and all these kind of things. As you do. I am giving this uh, very much the bullet point notation because I think The Shining is uh, a very iconic work and I'm not sure there's too much point in uh, giving it much more than that. It's a a touchstone of horror movies. Uh, All this stuff, of course, has an effect on Jack's uh, psyche who who goes uh, somewhat crazy and as happened some years previously, uh, goes a bit crazy and decides to take on and to to start killing his family, thus leading to the events of the end of the film. Now, it's based on a Stephen King film uh, book, but please don't don't run. No, no, it's actually quite good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Argu- uh, as much as Stephen King protests that this film did a massive <laughs> yes. disservice to the source material, I would I would argue that it's basically polished a turd. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I mean this, uh, I guess to a degree also applies to the book as well. But the, the, what makes this film uh, watchable for me, um, because uh, like all of us in this enterprise, we don't like horror films because none of them are any good. Mm. Uh, this is one of the few ones that I actually do like, uh, largely because rather than while at the end of the day, this is a supernatural horror film. For almost all of the time you're watching it, you could quite conceivably uh, come up with a, the determination that it's actually just a psychosis of Jack who's you know had a, mm. a break and it's all actually happening in his head. Turns out, you know, it's a fairly solid argument that, of course, it isn't, but that's quite underplayed in this film. Uh, any supernatural elements is actually uh, put on the back burner. It could all, well, not all, but a, a large degree of it could mm. well just be more of a psychological uh, basis for horror. Yeah, you, and that's you probably could ex- the- you could excise 15, 20 minutes of this film and, and actually have it as something other than a, a supernatural uh, yes. thing. And so, essentially, the reason we all like this film is Jack Nicholson, because his performance is astonishing. Um, <laughs> which is not to delittle either any of the uh, supporting characters, particularly Shelley Duval, who's, I think, routinely under, uh, underappreciated in the role of this film, but her, her screeching and the, the demands that Kubrick would put on her for coming up <laughs> with these hysteric performances for like 30-odd times in a row is you know, quite remarkable. But um, yes, it's yeah. a, it is clearly an emotionally exhausting experience for all concerned, but yeah. The, the performances that's been wrung out of these people by the end of it uh, really does make for some compelling viewing and you know some of the most compelling moments in, in horror. I mean, how many times has the, the axe uh, coming through the door been parodied and, and referenced and used, straight up just reused in other works? So there's an awful lot of very good reasons to watch The Shining. Um, it's one of the few horror films, as I say, that I actually quite enjoy and I appreciate them without having to really qualify it on any level. A lot of that is just because Jack Nicholson is such an iconic, charismatic and effective crazy person. Uh, he, he does that so well in this film. Uh, I, I don't subscribe to really having any more uh, depth to my enjoyment of this. I am not going to go some crazy room 200 and, was it, 231 uh, style? 237 or 237. something. Yeah, yeah the, the, there's a, an interesting little documentary based on some people's theories as to what happens in this film. I don't. I think they're all mental, but I yes. can nonetheless appreciate this for being an effective and enjoyable horror movie with some terrific performances, and that's why I like it. So, yes. 
Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's one of those films that had the cultural impact where people have people have bestowed upon it sort of myth and legend and apocryphal tales that really have no place. And a shout out at this point to um, our friends at the Films and Swearing podcast um, who uh, approached us on Twitter uh, when we were we were touting this episode and asked if uh, if any of us had seen that that documentary. Uh, to which the answer is yes, yes. And isn't it full of people who had an awful lot of free time on their hands? <laughs> we're, we're talking about people. People who have come up with all sorts of theories and who have gone into such detail as projecting the film twice at the same time, overlapping, but one one one, one version of the film playing from start to finish, whilst overlapped on a separate projector, they are playing the film uh, backwards, and they've made <laughs> they make notes that at certain points in the film, certain frames uh, line up <laughs> in such a, <laughs> such a way as that surely it could only be that Kubrick intended something. For not the reasons taking, of yes, question mark, not taking into account such things as mathematical probability when dealing with that number of frames. But at point, some point, yes, something visually interesting is statistically likely to happen in the space of two and a half hours. But this is it says something about the film that people have taken it to heart so much that so much nonsense has sprung up around it. Uh, you know all these apocryphal tales of oh yeah Stanley, Stanley. There are clues in this movie that 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 belie the fact that you know Stanley Kubrick secretly trying to tell us through The Shining that he was involved in faking the moon landings. And so, <laughs> I look, I don't know how you get there, but that's <laughs> the last time I checked. It was a film based on a totally pulpy horror novel about a dude who goes to a hotel to write a book and ends up going a bit mental. <laughs> I think you might be overanalyzing it slightly, but it says something in and of itself that this whole sort of cult has sprung up around the movie. And in some respects, with good reason, and I'm glad it's with a film like this. <laughs> you know, these cults could so easily spring up around, I don't know, a Steven Seagal movie or something. <laughs> And where and where would we be then? Um, but no, listen. The Shining is is uh, up until the point at which I I watched Barry Lyndon is was uh, easily my my favourite um, Kubrick film. And uh, interestingly, from the, the Twitter poll that we ran, we'll speak about uh, more in a moment. But um, I really expected more people to say that. Uh, and in one poll, it looked as if The Shining was going to run away until f- I think Full Metal Jacket might just have overtaken it slightly um, in people's opinions for this period of. Uh, uh, Kubrick's oeuvre, but um, the number of people I know for whom The Shining features in their sort of top 10 favourite movies of all time um, the movie certainly has something and it's not all Jack Nicholson's performance as as absolutely seminal as as, as that may be um, everything really comes together in this movie and I mean, almost almost bizarrely around such a sort of pulpy and, and slight and trashy subject matter Um it almost sees the peak of a lot of the the, the technical aspects of, of Kubrick's work. Uh, and there's so much sort of like fantastic camera work and, and such in this movie that there's really something to enjoy on almost every level, um, to the point where Nicholson's performance really is just the sort of histrionic icing on the cake. Um, <laughs> and for what it's worth, this 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 movie contains my favourite my favorite shot of all time in cinema history. Um uh, I just, um, yeah, you you can't really say enough about The Shining, but that's almost the point in that we, let's not talk about it in too much depth because you've probably seen it already and have an opinion one way or another, and I'm guessing your opinion is probably that you love it or at the very least were deeply unsettled by it. Um, 
But you can't just say it contains your favourite cinematic moment without actually saying what it is. Oh, sorry, my favourite shot of all time. It's the it's the slow zoom on um it's the slow slow zoom on Nicholson's face, which occurs, I think, after the title card of Thursday. Um and Shelley Duval and uh Danny are, are playing outside in the snow, I think, and it cuts to the interior and Jack Nicholson's just wearing this sort of like crazy roll neck woolen <laughs> jumper with the most maniacal look on his face as the camera slowly pans in over the course of about 90 seconds. Uh, and there's the slightest twitch of a smile appears on his face at one point. And it's just it's just such a haunting shot. And I, it, do you know what? It's one of those things where I can, I can only imagine at how many takes were probably made to get that shot the way that Kubrick wanted it. A very simple shot, um, nothing ostensibly technical, um, technical achievement involved in it other than probably just getting Jack Nicholson to twitch his face at the right frame. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, Kubrick would probably be great at Street Fighter. He'd definitely be a frame, he'd definitely be a frame counter. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I, I probably, actually, I would be just as, I would be unsurprised to learn that I'm entirely wrong and that they'd got that in the first take, actually. But um, yeah, no, just my favorite. There you go. A little bit of trivia for you. My favorite shot of all time. For what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> for no particular for no particular reason, um, so yes, that's the shining and a, a gap of a gap of seven years um, uh, until his next movie, which was 1987's Full Metal Jacket. Uh, yes, as we discussed, he did manage to kind of pick and choose his projects, particularly towards the, the later half of his career, and he's only taken out things that actually properly interested him. So that does lead us to the. One of the defining uh, Vietnam War films, although an awful lot of it doesn't actually occur in hmm. the Vietnam War, um, it is a tale of a young man, Private Joker Davis, played by Matthew Bodine, who's drafted into the army. I think he's drafted, may have joined up, not quite sure. But yeah, he joins the, the Marine Corps and is uh, a lot of time spent actually just training him through it. So the first, actually more than half of the film, I think, uh, it concerns him going through boot camp. Uh, of course, it's, uh, this is home to the iconic performance again from Lee Ermey as the uh, gunnery mm-hmm. sergeant who's training them. Um, was, of course, uh, famously brought on more as a technical advisor, but <laughs> fearing that no actual actor could be able to produce the same performance, he just took the role <laughs> himself. And fair play to him for Kubrick that. let him off the leash and said, Bollock, <laughs> bollock these guys as you would anyone else. <laughs> so, so off he goes. And a lot of the, the first... Uh, that first half plus a bit is centered on the relationship between Joker and uh, Gomer Pyle, Private Leonard Lawrence, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who is a somewhat less capable soldier, and his attempts to try and whip him into shape, which doesn't go too well <laughs> at the end of the day. <laughs> um, well, well, they do manage to actually make him a, a much better soldier. It has the somewhat uh, deleterious effect of actually breaking his mind in half and <laughs> leading to him <laughs> Uh, you know, very memorably killing himself after killing Emery. Um, so sorry, sorry if that's a spoiler. Incidentally, um, we're we're kind of assuming you've seen this, given it is one of the yes. most iconic movies of the twenty twenty nine years, years. Is enough time that we don't have to really worry yeah. about spoilers. Yeah. So after that, it's, it's sent off to to Vietnam, where uh, Joker is part of the journalist corps. Um, well, he's nominally a writer for the uh, the war magazines. He is also sent out onto the front lines to do some reportage, in which. Uh, is which leads to his uh, performance in uh, was it into a squad which then goes into enemy fire and meets with the kind of 
resistance resistance that you might expect from that. Um, all of which winds up with uh, us leading to Joker having to make a something of a, a cross a moral event horizon of himself towards the end of the the very end of the film, uh, as he sees his friends kind of wounded and bitten off by this uh, strange grinder of a conflict as it goes on throughout its uh, throughout its life. Now, it's. I'm kind of conflicted in where I come up with this film because, again, I do, I do like it, but as mm. I kind of mentioned earlier, regarding the way that um, Kubrick was kind of structuring these things with, I think he was calling them submersible units, where you know he talks about these the points that you need to have in a film, but he wasn't really concerned with the narrative flow. And this is another example no. where it's just a, it's all a bit bitty. You know, mm-hmm. there's this whole front front element with the boot camp that could have been a film by itself, and there's a whole front uh, section in Vietnam which could have been a film by itself, but they've just been kind of cut and shut together. Yeah, um, I think it's probably it's remarkable that it's not hampered more by this. Because in almost any other hand, you could see this just being an absolute disaster. And it's, it's not quite the leap um, from monkeys chucking bones about to, um, you know, um, giant no. space wheels. Um, uh, but it's very much in the same vein. And it is, I've, al- I've always found it jarring and and very much at odds of, of what I would expect um, of, a, of a narrative in a movie of this kind. And that's not to say that I'm right. And maybe I'm just not appreciating, appreciating it the right way. But I do, I do very much agree with you. It's not... Um, the the structure of this movie is not to my taste as as much as I enjoy the movie. Um, yeah. I I kind of feel like my enjoyment of it as an audience member could quite easily have been improved in a number of ways without without sacrificing the quality or the you know the integrity or the message of the film. Yeah, there's there's a lot of abrupt elements in it which I don't really think serves all that well. Um, but as I say, it's it's kind of made up for by the fact that you have some absolute career defining and career best performances I mean Matthew Medine has never been better in the intervening time uh, Vincent D'Onofrio kind of has probably as a result of this has been sidelined into kind of the, the cookie rolls in, in television and whatnot. but regardless of that it is easily his best performance uh, in everything that I've seen uh, I mean even the guys, the supporting guys like Adam Baldwin much as I don't like the guy and um, of course, that performance from Arlie Emery as the, the drill sergeant, all of that is just so absolutely you know, drilled into your brain from the first time oh. you see it that it's difficult to do have anything other than the highest degree of respect for Full Metal Jacket. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, it's hard to say it's a defining Vietnamese uh, war film, given that it could almost apply to almost any film, uh, uh-huh. any war, sorry. Um in particular, all that boot camp element, which doesn't seem too different from where it would have been for well since the since the dawn of militaries, I would suppose. Uh, and the sections in Vietnam themselves, although they're affecting, I don't think they're anything like as they don't have the same punch as that first half does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boot camp stuff really is where all of my interest lies, and I, I frequently forget that this actually goes to Vietnam when I'm thinking of it in my head. Yeah, you know? do you know what's telling about it? Is and tell me if you've had the same experience. But any time I've discussed this movie with someone else in the context of it being specifically a Vietnam War movie, the touchstone for it is always "Me love you long time." Yes, there's not. <laughs> it's there's, there's no real discussion of anything that happens in a war context. It's yeah. always it's always about the. Um, uh, oh God! What was the capital of? Uh, it was always about the uh, the hookers in Saigon, yeah. Um, rather than the uh, that that's people's touchstone. It's it's really weird, really weird. But yeah. that in itself probably tells you something. 
Yeah, which although want to diminish that. I mean, that scene towards the end, the whole bit with the uh, being pinned down by the well, not pinned down by exactly by the sniper, but that whole scene towards the end of the, the guy oh. being shot by the sniper is that's a really incredibly well executed and well acted uh, bit of film. Um, but it could come from any film. Uh, sorry, could come from any war. Yeah, it's nothing specific to Vietnam, other than the fact, Bill, it happened in Vietnam, I suppose. So that does make it specific in that regard. But that aside, it's such a universal thing. So um, again, we're just coming back to the 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 touchstone that's kind of driven through all of this stuff, being that the the whole idea of this, you know, the, the folly of war and the, just the, the ridiculousness that is inherent in all of this kind of forms of conflict, regardless of when it is, whether it's in the what, the 18th century with Barry Lyndon or whether it's right up to date with, uh, well, roughly up to date with the Vietnamese War or whether it's in the World War One, all of that is just a kind of theme that's ran all the way through his work, and it's nice to see that kind of being brought through. It's such a obviously such a a strong touchstone for him. Uh, so whether you could say it's it's more applicable to war generally than Vietnam itself, uh, which is arguably a position to take from it, but I don't think that stops it being partic- being you know so I so enjoyable a film. I think it's, it's perhaps the wrong term because that whole section at the end is not in any way enjoyable in a conventional sense, but it is so well uh, observed and so well uh, executed that it's, you certainly have to respect it. Um, I don't think that second half matches up, as I've said, to the boot camp scenes, which are just so, so iconic. Um, uh-huh. But nonetheless, it's, it's still easily one of the most remarkable and, in my view, one of the best war films that's been made. So you can't go wrong with that. No, you certainly can't. And so I guess probably with some disappointment then, we we, we press on 12 years uh, further to 1999 and Kubrick's last film uh, before he sadly passed away, which was the uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman starring Eyes Wide Shut. As, I, as I'm sorry, I'm forced to refer to it by, <laughs> by a friend of mine, a young lady in Holland who I know will be listening to this. <laughs> oh, that one's for you, Vicky. Um, yeah, I I haven't felt compelled to reevaluate Eyes Wide Shut recently. I've I've watched it on a couple of occasions in the intervening years and never really found anything to be engaged by. But perhaps perhaps you have a different opinion, Scott. Certainly, I mean, give us give us a gist of it. Nope. Um, <laughs> right, the, the gist of the film. I can do that at least. Uh, you have. Tom Cruise playing Dr. Dr. William Hartford, who's been in a relationship with his wife, Alice Hartford, played by Nicole Kidman for some years. Um, and the main beef of this, he, so he's a, a doctor in New York, his wife's an art curator, and they seem to be having a fairly standard and happy marriage. Uh, however, once at some point, a somewhat doped up Alice uh, explains to Tom that he had Sorry, to, to Dr. William Hartford. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's hard Tom to express. Yes. That he had been, she had uh, at some point thought about sleeping with someone else. And this is enough to push poor Dr. Bill Hartford off the edge as he, as he goes off in what is billed as a, a night long, uh, exploration of his sexuality and his morality. However, it's actually a night long, boring trudge through New York <laughs> as he comes across some of the most curiously sexless bits of erotica that you could possibly imagine. And uh, 
well, well, he he he's he runs into an old friend who kind of invites him to roundabout invites him to some underground uh, elite style orgy of sorts, and this then brings him into when it's figured out that he shouldn't be be there. This kind of lets him brings him into some kind of more existential dangers. It seems like these guys might be hunting him to actually kill him or something along those lines. And it turns into something more of a, a kind of conventional thriller at that point. But it's, for something that was, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was billed very much as uh, his Kubrick's departure into erotica. Mm. And it is so strangely so, sterile for yeah. all that it would be done. This, I mean, uh, we... You mentioned earlier about Kubrick was seen as clinical and uh, uh-huh. perhaps that one that he's a bit motionless. And I can I can certainly see that when it comes to emotions such as love. I mean, uh-huh. certainly he's he's been all over the kind of spectrum with anger and all that kind of stuff and violence and stuff. But love's an emotion and warmth has never really been his bag, and neither has you know anything remotely sexual. So this kind of was seen as a a non-plussing departure for well. I think for everybody, certainly for me, I, I had no interest in watching this when it came out, and I'd, although I wound up buying it at some point, and I never actually had any interest in actually watching it until I came to, uh, to for this podcast, and it has not impressed me in the slightest. Um, in particular, Tom Cruise's character is uh, an absolute douchebag, non-entity. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, apart from being just some kind of peely wally non-entity in the, the first first instance, the fact that someone something as simple as his wife <laughs> somewhat <laughs> admitting that he's she's, he's a somewhat fantasized about having sex with someone else would have him almost sleep with prostitutes and just all all these other I things was, that he goes on through and I, it's just absolutely baffling to me I was going to ask you as and, a married man has that, has that been your experience at any point because I know it's not been no. mine <laughs> no not in the slightest it's a strange out and I don't know quite what they were thinking with it and mm. I mean I could it's, almost see a, a somewhat slight reinforcement reformulation where you could almost strip this of pretty much all the erotic elements of it and turn it into a nice little thriller thriller which you'll thought at that point I might as well be talking about the game but it's uh, there's a there's an interesting film in there somewhere but I just don't buy this version of it because it's also curiously sexless I mean Tom Cruise uh, I mean, more so now, but even then at the time, I just don't think of him as a sexual entity. Even oh. when he was, I assume he was still married to Nicole Kidman at this point, correct? Yes. So, um, well, this is this is very much the thing of a lot of people um, have, have made the assumption that this is, oh, this is the film that ruined their marriage because it was shortly after this that they announced that they'd been having marital problems and they, they split up. Whereas I very much prefer to think of it as yeah. Kubrick, Kubrick selfishly leveraging the fact that their marriage was in crisis <laughs> to, yeah. to attain a more realistic representation. But it, it is bizarre that a performance given by a, 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 and a very accomplished actor and his, his then wife, also, an, incred- an incredibly accomplished actor could yeah. could be so um, sexless. Yes, I, I I see the points where this where this is supposed to be erotic, but maybe I don't know why it's not hitting my buttons on that particular basis. But yeah, it just seems so like detached from anything approaching a sexual uh, impulse in my, in my being. That it's, mm. it's difficult to see that it would be for anyone. It's just such a it clearly has its own goals in mind, and I don't think it hits any of them. It's just a, 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 a 
altogether too sterile a performance from oh. everyone involved. And even when you go to something that is an orgy, it's still shot very sterilely. There's all these weird, there's all these long tracking shots or stuff that doesn't. There's there's no. There's no engagement with anything there. You're all you're just like, I was voyeuristically this, viewing this, and I don't that think sense, it actually works. It feels it feels like a movie that was made forty years earlier. Mm. You know, and that it doesn't. It it feels like it doesn't actually want to tackle the stuff head on, or as though it was being made at a time where culturally it would be very yeah. difficult to approach that thing. Probably is just very strange, like you say. Very, it it hints at a lot of things, but it's, for all that it would have you believe that it's being explicit, it's not really at all. Not even close to it. No. no. Um, you could you could make very minor cuts to this, and at least it's a 12. <laughs> there are, well, there are, I mean, cuts were made to at the time, and I'm not sure which versions now. I mean, I know more recent versions of it are unaltered, but here in the UK, at least, uh, a couple of scenes were digitally altered, I think, in the, the orgy scene or whatever, um, to to obscure um, parts. And I, I, the only version I've seen was that altered version, I think. And I'm, I'm almost sort of out of a morbid curiosity want to see the unedited version just to see if there is anything there whatsoever, whether it be you know, six frames of footage that warrant <laughs> anything like the the explicit tag that you this movie so badly feels like it wants you to believe it has. And it like you yeah. say, it just just doesn't. You you really could with a couple of edits for dialogue and stuff, this could honestly you could show this thing at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And the problem with the film in this basis is that it spends what, like half its running time trying to get you down that uh, path of thinking, oh, look at this, look at this erotica. And it fails so miserably that when it actually gets somewhat interesting, which it kind of does mm. towards the end when it's more of a mystery or a thriller, mm. uh, I just don't actually care about the characters in it. And to be honest, if they'd actually caught uh, Tom Cruise and decided to kill him, wouldn't really have cared all that much because he's such a, a bland character at that point that I don't really care about what happened to him. So that's a bit of a failure on the film's part. Uh, I just couldn't engage with the main characters and therefore I couldn't really engage with anything that's happening to them. Yeah. That's the thing is that for a movie like this to to um, to, to pin everything on a, a, a context <coughs> of something to, to so... Oh, how do I want to phrase this? For for a movie to put all of its eggs in essentially in one basket and portray itself as being something so intensely sexual and then to botch that up, yeah, is a huge a huge faux pas. And you have to wonder at what stage that was something that went wrong. I mean, is it is it purely an inception? Because like you say, I feel there's a much better movie to be made along the same lines here than there actually is. But honestly, I mean, post post basic instinct it's you know the the goalposts for an erotic thriller and it, I, not necessarily in as trashy a sense as that was but the goalposts for an erotic mainstream trashy thriller um have been have been well placed it's not uh, i don't know i'm not suggesting that kubrick should have made a <laughs> basic instinct <laughs> too or anything you know what i'm trying to say it's it seems like so far wide of the mark that you have to wonder what you know, at what point it, anyone stopped paying attention. Yeah, I mean, it's as close as he got to the kind of rumoured blue movie that he was working on, his, mm. his, his actual porn film, but it's, there just doesn't seem to be any passion here from anyone involved. And that's kind of strange to see, given the body of the rest of his work, not only his work, but also Tom Cruise's work and Nicole Kidman's work, they're all mm -hmm. capable of much more engaging, much more emotional, much more passionate performances than you've seen here. And it's such a such a misfire on 
nearly every level. I mean, not not all of them. I mean, it still looks absolutely gorgeous and all these other kind of things that you do apply to pretty much every uh, Kubrick film post, uh, well, even including Spartacus. Uh, you know, technically, it's all very well. It's all very, all very sound. You can't, you can't take that away from it. But just on every kind of level that would make me want to care about the film, it just fails on. And uh, yeah, I, I just... I, yeah, not impressed in the slightest by why I shot him at all. At all, I'm afraid. No, I, w- I, I would have been interested to see how um, Kubrick had gone on to handle AI if he hadn't have popped his clogs and and left that in the the hands of Spielberg. But yeah, um, I think it's let's not let. I think a lot of people let Eyes Wide Shut detract from um, from their overall opinion of of Kubrick because it was the last thing that he did before he passed away. But I I suspect you know on the evidence of everything that's there, it's not as though he was on some sort of decline. Um, and there's every reason to suspect that that might just have been a blip, and that his next project could have been a a magnificent return to form. Yeah. Um, and certainly, I mean, if you you know out of a catalogue of of twelve or thirteen movies, you know, a, a soft bookend at either end sh- really shouldn't detract from what are nine or nine or ten. At, at the very least, incredibly competent and you know well polished movies to seven or eight of those being you know pretty much bona fide classics. I mean, of course. I mean, uh, and I hope that's been well recognised. I mean, I think it's well regarded, well recognised that his body of work, when taken as a whole, is leagues ahead in terms of general quality to almost any director who's ever been mm. plied this trade. I mean. In future generations, there will not be a retrospective podcast of Brett Ratner's films, for example. You know, <laughs> well, you say never that, Scott. Well, you say that. I say <laughs> that. I do say that with absolute confidence. Coming up in March, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because someone like Brett Ratner, who I always pick on for this, but I don't really mean it's the service. But he is one of these directors who is, you know, he he's very competent again. What's written on the page up on a screen, uh, but there's no authorism in there, and there's a, there's a there's a competence in Ratner's work that I admire, and just in terms of the fact that he can do that, he's a safe pair mm. of hands for actually producing something. Yeah. Even and if that, even if what's produced turns out to be absolute gash. Yeah, and the same in the same way that I can be fascinated by how you know a battery hen farm can churn out twenty thousand eggs a day. <laughs> do you know what I mean? What yeah. te- technical and agricultural marvel that is. Um, but, but something like Ratner will never produce anything along the lines of the the films that that. Kubrick has produced and the iconic moments that he's been able to produce throughout his battery of career for mm. 50 years. Um, so uh, there's certainly no way that we should be diminishing his performance because it's one of his last film we didn't like all that much, mm. particularly when almost all of the rest of them we have liked to degrees where we're including them, we're almost including them in our top 10 films lists. So yeah, what a career the man has had and what a what a wonderful uh, body of work that he's left us to enjoy. And Mr. V- Vitali, was it? The technical advisor? Well, he can go and get stuffed. I mean, yes. I, I, could, I, you I, please, could you please <laughs> resign and appoint someone who knows what they're talking about to handle, handle the man's releases? <laughs> I'm eternally miffed by my description on the back of the Shining DVD release that I've got that says it's in widescreen. And I think, I mean, technically, 4.3 is wider than it is tall, but it's not <laughs> what I understand in widescreen. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! So uh, I don't know. you mentioned the Twitter polls, um, the Twitter which polls. I have not seen the results of. So what? what well, what, what say the world? I, I split this into three polls, okay? And I looked at I looked across this twelve uh, the twelve most recent films. So beginning beginning with Killer's Kiss, 
um, and uh, working all the way through to Eyes Wide Shut. I split it into three polls and I asked our, our peeps on Twitter uh, to weigh in with their favourite in each of those periods. So for early periods, um, uh, Kubrick. Uh, we have Killer's Kiss, The Killing, Paths of Glory, and Spartacus. Uh, Paths of Glory, the clear winner with 67% of the vote, uh, and Spartacus with 33 uh, with the caveat that we had a whole three votes <laughs> on, <laughs> on there, one of which, <laughs> at least one of which for Paths of Glory was mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if the other yeah. was yours, was it? I didn't vote in any of these polls, but if I right. had, it would be for Paths of Glory. I, I, um, I, I did to bump start them, and I think that's a, I think that's a, a fair, uh, I think that's a pretty fair result for Paths of Glory. I think objectively that is absolutely um, the the milestone movie from that early period. Absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of that response was due to a couple of factors. Interestingly enough, I was putting it mostly down to the timing at which I posted it and my lack of um, my lack of foresight in posting it two days ago uh, with a time limit of one day meaning I, I couldn't bump it further into people's timelines mm. today to sort of uh, garner more responses but also I think it's interesting that you point out that at that period of his career uh, at least a couple of those movies a lot of people are unlikely to have seen yes, uh, and I mean, therefore not be able to to yeah, uh, form exactly. a, an opinion of so there there is that um I'm I'm pleased to say that we got a much more positive response for um mid-period uh Kubrick, so uh, taking into account Lolita, Doctor Strange Love, 2001 A Space Odyssey and A Clockwork Orange, we had 28 votes, which was a far a far more um, <laughs> acceptable sample. Uh, so thank you for everybody who voted there. That was a really pleasant surprise to get that many votes. Um, uh, fourth place, perhaps unsurprisingly, Lolita, with mm. uh, 4%, or I think that obviously breaks down as just one vote. Yeah. Um, perhaps more surprisingly, Dr. Strangelove in third place with 25% of the vote. Um, mm, I thought that might have done had done better, but then uh, obviously your comment there around how well it's weathered on repeat viewing might might be a factor there for people. Um, 2001 in third place, or sorry, second place rather, with 29% of the poll, and A Clockwork Orange with 43% is Kind of what I expected. I thought it was going to be Clockwork Orange or 2001. Um, yeah, surprise it's not 2001. I mean, for me, I mm. think a Clockwork Orange is the most enduringly uh, thought-provoking film, for mm. example. But, but of those, I would say Strange Love is the best. Yes, uh, certainly on your first viewing, I can't see past Strangelove. It's just such a such an amazingly well observed. No, I, I can't either. Comedy. My my vote there would have, and in fact did go to Doctor Strangelove again, only purely in the interest of bump starting the the vote. I, I, I'm not sure if anybody likes to be the first to vote, so <laughs> I always I always cast the initial vote on posting these polls anyway. Um, and then for the latter period, Kubrick. Um, uh, there is still there is still thirteen hours left to vote if you want at the time of recording, <laughs> but it will not be taken into account. Um, we have Barry Lyndon, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and of course Eyes Wide Shut. Um, disappointingly for me, uh, out of twenty two votes, only my vote um, f- for Barry Lyndon. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> and disgracefully, an equal number of votes, one vote for Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> no, no taste maker am I. Um, and then, actually, uh, perhaps surprisingly here, The Shining in second place at 41% of the poll and Full Metal Jacket at 50 Um uh, Keen-eyed viewers or keen-eared viewers will uh, notice there that that ad- actually adds up to 101%. So, so thank you, Twitter poll, for rounding incorrectly. <laughs> um, initially, as I was watching these poll numbers live, uh, The Shining looked like it was going to run away with it, and then there was a late surge for Full Metal Jacket. So I'm, I'm quite surprised by that, because, again, I thought out of that batch there that The Shining was going to be uh, 
a complete runaway um, even before voting started. But there you go. Um, hmm. More people engaged by Full Metal Jacket, or at least out of the 22 people who voted in that poll. So that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, I'm not sure what that says, if anything. Um, I'm not going to argue with anyone who who enjoys Full Metal Jacket that much because it is a very very good film. But I just had a feeling that The Shining would was more the iconic film uh, and more the one that people would uh, would uh, tend towards. But there you go. Not a huge gulf yeah. between the two. I think the main thing that poll suggests is that not enough people have watched Barry Lyndon. So get that sorted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get that sorted. And if you do watch it and you dislike it, watch it again because you're wrong. <laughs> um, but listen, thank you so much for everyone who took part in that poll. That those last couple of polls there, although they're obviously modest numbers by by Twitter standards at large, that's a that's a great response for us. That was really heartening for me that so many yes. people responded. So thank you very much for uh, for your input. Yep, thank you very much for everyone on Twitter. And uh, yeah, please keep engaging with us. We'll one of us is normally on there at some point to, to either agree or rebut with what you're saying. So please you know, try and yes. keep us engaged. It keeps us busy. Keeps us off the streets. Exactly. If you do uh, want to give us a follow and help with any retweets on stuff, then obviously it's at Fuds on Film. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, which you can check out. Yes, that's facebook.com slash Fuds on Film. Uh, also, obviously, a lot of our audio is served up through SoundCloud, so you, you should be quite easy to find on there. Um, and uh, what was I going to say? Yes, the biggest favour you could do us would be to hop on over to iTunes and look us up there and uh, leave us a review on iTunes. You, I know you hear this from every podcast you subscribe to at the moment, but um, those iTunes reviews really do make the world a difference to rankings and exposure, and it really helps us. It's one of the most effective ways to uh, to help us find more listeners out there. So if you have enjoyed the podcast, or even if you've got any critical feedback, bring it on. We are more than open to criticism. If it's constructive, uh, pop on over to iTunes and let us know one way or another, and we will be eternally grateful. Uh, Scott, is there anyone we wanted to give a shout-out to on this episode? I've not been keeping up with the Twitters, I must own it. But uh, other than the guys... You've already mentioned the guys at the Films and Swearing podcast, so I guess these were the... The main folks that got by this, um, I don't know if there was a if the, the the vote was actually counted, but if not, Rich Smith, who we spoke to in various counts with the Switch eighty seven, also won for Spartacus. Yeah, so, so I'm guessing you were the one, one vote for, for Spartacus there, mate, out of the the three yeah. total. Um, yes. So I, I'm not going to fight you or anything because I voted for Paths of Glory. Don't worry about yes. that. Completely valid opinion. Thank you, mate. Yes, and uh, also shouts out to Matt Toller, M. Toller, who's uh, bracing himself for our Clockwork Orange pod commentary, which will be coming to you on the 10th, so look forward to that. Gird your loins and brace for some a bit of the old ultra-violence and in-out, in-out. I was going to say, look, look forward to that for any given value of look forward to. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, and anyone else who we've forgotten, uh, obviously, um, all of the the contact and interaction we have with you guys is is greatly appreciated and very much enjoyed. So, uh, if you've got an opinion on anything that you've listened to in this podcast, or even uh, past podcasts, or anything that you would like us to talk about in future, then please do let us know. Um, as Scott mentioned, we will be back on the tenth of February with our commentary for Clockwork Orange. I think we're pretty much certain on that at this point, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in the meantime, I suppose take care of yourselves. I was Craig Eastman, Scott was Scott. I certainly was. And we will catch you all on the flip side. Cheerio. Bye. Bye.